Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a host of Explaining Ukraine podcast. What is the response of Ukraine to coronavirus pandemic? How the Ukrainian society is responding to it? And what's happening in the information area? We are talking with the famous Ukrainian journalist Natalia Huminyuk, who is the founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab and former head of uh, Romansky TV, and in particular about the report she prepared with colleagues, which is called From Distrust to Solidarity, How Can We Inform People About the Coronavirus, which was prepared by Public Interest Journalism Lab together with Lviv Media Forum, the London School of Economics, Kharkiv Institute for Social Research. Good afternoon, uh, Natalia. Good to talk to you, Volodya. In this report, there are many interesting insights. Uh, it is based upon your reporting and also uh, upon the uh, survey that you made about, uh, around people. But you're mentioning the trust as a very important concept and a very important feeling in society. Do you think that the pandemic showed the lack of trust in Ukrainian society or a surplus of trust? Well, I think, uh, of course, that's a complex is- issue, but I think that the trust is actually in the core of everything, of the attitude of the Ukrainians towards the government, towards their neighbors, towards you know their fellow citizens, and actually, uh, depending on whether they trust uh, people around themselves, uh, that's influences, that's you know, uh, make them feel anxiety or vice versa, able to consolidate, which is absolutely critical in the time of crisis. I probably just should mention shortly, uh, I won't get, go in depth into the methodology, uh, but what we've done, we first of all produced a number of vi- videos um, which were broadcasted uh, at the public broadcasting uh platforms, Ukrainian public broadcaster, and also those videos were done according to the so-called constructive journalism approach. So that was the stories of the solidarity. And our hypothesis was that if you show that the solidarity, the cases of empathy, they would help people overcome anxiety and confusion. And in fact, our hypothesis was confirmed. But besides that, we also done a number of the in-depth structured interviews, uh, which led us to understand, you know, what is the level of the anxiety in the society? uh, What is the attitude towards the media narrative, towards the uh, government, you know, something about the conspiracy theories. And um, though we talk to the people, the, the, our colleagues from Kharkiv sociologists talk to the people in the east, west, south, uh, or center, people of different ages, the sample is not big, but uh, it, it gives us the, uh, you know, to, to kind of say that this, how all the Ukrainians are feeling, but it clearly, according to the methodology, is evidence-based description of what are the major people's concern. And what we understand that, of course, there is distrust of the government. This is nothing new, honestly saying. Uh, we know that this is a distrust. It's historic. It's not really just to this government. Generally, people know that the Ukrainian healthcare is not in the best shape. I think like this is a soft way to put it. But in general, what I want to say is that often today we're speaking a lot about the populism. We're speaking about that the people want this, you know, especially in post-Soviet countries. It's very often when we speak about the, our population as this kind of paternalistic, the people who want the government uh, to do everything at the same time is not satisfied with the government. And it's very confusing. But what we understood that people, in fact, are ready 
to follow some rules, ready to uh, understand that, you know, the government can't provide everything, but they want to have a clear logic. They want to hear very clear explanation why this action happens and for instance if some help is provided what is the criteria by the government to support this group or not that group of society and we also see that the distrust is very complex you know sometimes people think that the government overdoing the fact that there is a pandemic so for instance in fact it's not that strict and government is doing these things in order to limit some freedoms at the same time some people think that the government may be silencing and there are way more cases. There is a different attitude towards the government in Kiev and the local authorities. But yes, probably this pandemic showed that the trust in the society is the most important social capital. And when people trust the volunteers and the civil society, there is more chances to overcome. When the volunteers cooperate with the government, it also creates more feeling of stability. And uh, this is maybe something which at some point sounds maybe even obvious, but I think we're living in the times when obvious sometimes should be confirmed with facts. But there is something not obvious in your study because there is a habit to think about Ukrainian society as a society of mistrust, where there is a habit of mistrusting the government, whereas you say that, well, people were more or less conforming to the Uh, recommendations or policy uh, policy actions of the government. And we see that basically the trust level of President Zelensky even increased during the pandemic. So do you think it is kind of a new, interesting and curious reality? I think, yes. I think in this regard, especially if we're speaking to our foreign audience, which generally see Ukrainians as a society which is full of mistrust in comparison to many other societies, it's actually a normal society. Our colleagues, because this is a partner The, the, the report has been done in research in the partnership and sociologists who looked at the raw data from London School of Economics actually mentioned that, in fact, when we read the answers and some concerns of the people, for instance, when they are not very happy that there are many healthcare workers uh, diagnosed with COVID-19, for instance, or there were not enough of the protective gear for medics, that's kind of a thing which we have in all of the societies, in the countries which are way wealthier. So I do think that what we produce also shows that though there is a mistrust, there is a lot of common ground and there is a potential to regain this trust. One aspect where we looked at was particular, because we started from the hypothesis that the solidarity helps to overcome anxiety, because when just the pandemics had arrived to Ukraine in March, we have seen that the main government policy was stay at home, stay at home, do nothing. And we, in fact, doubted that, that, you know, just this passive approach for the people to do nothing make them feel powerless. So we really filmed those stories about Ukrainian designers pursuing the costumes for the medical workers or younger volunteers helping, you know, bringing the food or necessary things to the elderly, the most vulnerable, so they don't come out from their houses, uh, or like the young designers who are having their 3D lab 
printing out, making these uh, masks uh, necessary for the healthcare workers. But what was interesting that it's indeed most of the people felt very positive, calmed down by the fact that these initiatives are existing and the Ukrainian citizens are supporting each other. At the same time, not a majority, but there was a, a kind of a minority. There were the people among our respondents who were very much concerned that made them feel a bit anxious and frightened that the volunteers doing something the state should do. And for us, you know, especially journalists who covering a lot for the last years, the various things, how the volunteers in Ukraine doing more or less everything from helping the army to other things. It was also a bit a kind of an insight which let us understand that In fact, we also have to be very cautious because when it's applicable, it's important to say that it's a lot about the cooperation between the, not antagonism between the volunteers and the government. The people, in fact, very much like the idea when, for instance, volunteers done something together with the healthcare workers. So it felt like there is the need, there is a demand for this cooperation. And since it's happening, we see this ground, this potential for places where people meet together. And for instance, one of our recommendations for the media or for anybody who communicate is also to be careful. I'm not saying to say that the volunteers cooperate with the state. If, if they don't, they don't. But to be very careful not to show the particular groups of the society as atomized groups, but rather show their cooperation. As for instance, elderly, it was very interesting that elderly people were very inspired that the young people were doing something, uh, which also I never come up to my mind as a reporter, that you know that in fact for the elderly, in fact, that's very inspiring. They want to know that there is a different generation. And I think this is a very, you know, like silver lining of this situation, as I can say, as we often can find in different crises in Ukraine. You mentioned volunteers and it's very interesting. Indeed, we have this narrative that there are vibrant volunteering society in Ukraine and this is true but sometimes it's underestimated the role of the state which is in many aspects is still not that bad and, and doing quite well. Let me also come to an issue that you raised is that you're, you're writing that there is low anxiety but uh, in fact, big resilience against the crisis in Ukraine. You elaborate on it saying that Ukrainians are basically used to crisis and this crisis was not something very dramatic for them. Do you think we can say that based upon this, well, rather dramatic Ukrainian history, Ukrainians have this uh, better resilience against the crisis than probably some other societies? I think that in this probably I can be quite sure this is not the first research. We, we've done the research on different stories and the resilience in particular, for instance, we were in totally different study. We were working with the experience of the 1990s and the Ukrainians of different age showed kind of this kind of a strong resilience. And here it was clear that people regarded the COVID-19 pandemic as a crisis in the same way as other events, such as Chernobyl disaster, the 1990s and the 2008 economic crash. So the fact that the anxiety was lower was not thanks to the fact that, for instance, the government does something great, but the fact that we lived through difficult things, we're in fact very much used to do that, uh, we know how to cope with that, and people are, of course, more concerned about the uh, economic difficulties for particular families, but seeing that they come through 
something like that. Yet at this point, while we're talking already in June, I want to mention that when we started, the most of the survey has been done in the end of April, mid of April. It's uh, for sociological survey, uh, for those who know, it's very fast, it's very short term for such analysis. But I think the situation has a change on the ground. And we, in fact, has written that everybody should be very much concerned that despite kind of appreciating that there is the low degree of anxiety about the pandemic, there is the risk that the people might neglect the cautious, all the kind of the safety measures which are still there. And I should say that I'm today more disturbed about this fact because it's already the second stage of the easing the quarantine measures. And the restaurants are opening, the subway in Kiev had started working. And I think that there is moment that the journalists covering the end of the quarantine, like the strict quarantine, as the end of the pandemics. However, the figures show that more or less, yes, it's not the highest numbers, but they are still high. If we had, for instance, the Ukrainian highest number was around like 500 cases per day. Now we have around 300 cases per day for a number of weeks, more or less. So I think that it's something to say that it doesn't mean that the journalists should vice versa to kind of make people panic again. But this softening of the quarantine, we should be extremely careful about that. I think to continue your thought, it's very interesting because at some segments of society, I have an impression that if the government says we are easing the quarantine, then the pandemic is over. So there is kind of a, an attempt to take the government measures as a kind of a absolute truth. And this is also probably worrying. But let me come to the next issue. You also study the different types of conspirational thinking. And in a broader landscape, do you think that the influence of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories was big in Ukrainian experience of facing the pandemic? Honestly, that's also the complex thing. We in particular looked at the different types of con conspiratorial thinking which we have in Ukraine. And that was both interesting for me that at the same time, the biggest problem was about still about the trust to the government, all kind of the theories about, you know, incapability of the government or some kind of wrong perception. Um, I in generally think that the Ukrainians were not that much affected by uh, by all kind of conspiracy theories, meaning that this is the main source of information that they was overwhelming. But what is also important for me as a journalist to understand that we cannot ignore that because all the respondents, every respondent have heard this or that conspiracy theory, and in particular the elderly, the group which most of others were knowledgeable about like at least three uh, different types of, of the conspiracy theories all about, you know, they are all more or less the same globally. It's about that there is a group of people who, you know, want to enrich themselves. This is a way to, I don't know, change the way how the world economy works, all the stories about Bill Gates, everything is present. And people knew about that. Um, so, for instance, for us, it was also concerning and disturbing. However, I should say maybe for somebody surprising, not, not for myself, that especially elderly, they uh, all uh, read and uh, use Internet. But if people generally are today more cautious about Internet, somehow television looks like something more official, especially elderly who started to read different kind of Telegram, Viber groups or something. They are less 
educated about how to deal with the information on this kind of social media. So it's there. But our research was not really fully devoted to the conspiracy thinking. That was just one part of it. We think that more research is needed. What is extremely interesting that you can't generalize that this is one type of people which is more prone to conspiracy theories. And uh, we can find a different group. So, for instance, there are people who are generally more vulnerable and they are afraid that something bad would happen to their community. There are people who are more individualistic in their approach. They generally don't trust not just the government or anybody, but do not trust even their neighbors and fellow citizens. There are people who are, in fact, go to the conspiracy theories because they provide them inspiration that this whole crisis is a hoax, so they don't need to worry. That's for them kind of the light in the end of the tunnel. But probably what's interesting for me in this group, what is interesting to mention, particularly now, that we often consider that among the people who are prone to the conspiratory thinking, there are, let's say, those people with the pro-Soviet nostalgia, and they definitely are. We know that the Russian government use all the people who are reading Russian media, that they would read more information coming from Russian sources. But I found that among the people who are really supporting volunteers, there are those who like this individualistic, who do not trust everybody, and they are not at all pro-Russian. These are the people who kind of just don't trust the government and they are these kind of free-minded people, which reminded me a bit about this type of people also in the US. Those who really don't trust the government generally, think that the mainstream is taken by the elite or something. So I think like this, this kind of type of people in Ukraine are also present. You also elaborate a lot about your advice, about, I think, several dozens of advice to media and communication channels, how to react on it and some good practices. What I know is that you, you focus very much on the storytelling, on stories of particular people, in particular those people who can generate trust, meaning, the, for example, doctors, etc. So do you think that the best thing to combat these conspiracy theories, to combat this anxiety, is to go into storytelling? Indeed. You know, we were for a while discussing generally how to debunk, you know, fakes and other things. I should mention that the partners of the Public Interest Journalism Lab is Arena Project co-directed by Peter Pomerantsev and M. Applebaum. And Peter Pomerantsev is somebody who also like for a while researching what is the answer to all kind of this disinformation. And he's probably on the side as well, which I probably would also support him in the idea that you can't just always debunk because then you more or less risk to stay in the same paradigm of this kind of world of the fake news. And the efficient way is just to show a different story because it's necessary. We see that there is a demand for the fact-based. We need to prove again and again that there is a need for fact-based reporting because, for instance, now there is a lot of statistics about what's provided to that hospital. That amount of mask has been given and the government tries to draw different kind of nice infographics. And it feels like people don't trust that much. Uh, what they really, really trust, it's when you really show the hospital, when you really show the doctor, when they can see some things with their eyes, when there is no imposed truth. People are a bit tired with imposed version of reality. So particularly when we designed the stories, our stories, there wasn't more or less human-centric stories. The protagonists of these stories were looking like 
everybody, like similar to the normal people. They were speaking in a simple language. There was no narration. And all the stories we've done, they've been trusted. And that's for us why I think that there is evidence for this type of storytelling. So we really think that despite there was all this discussion that the doctors are on the front line, you need to show those doctors. You need to give them the voice. It couldn't be that the politicians saying that the doctors are on the front lines and you do all kind of the placates around the city, support our doctors. At this moment, people really want to see them with their own eyes. And that would give the feeling that, you know, that you, I can assess myself whether this is true or not. It's interesting that you also mentioned the, the level of detail, that it's important to show the details. And sometimes people can be mistrustful to some, you know, very tiny things. For example, that a speaker doesn't wear a mask or doesn't wear a mask properly, etc. So the aim of this reporting is really to immerse yourself into a story and a kind of provoking or instigating some sympathy or empathy of the audience with the heroes. Is that correct? You know, we've done the recommendations, but they are based on the kind of a longer sociological study. The recommendation and the executive summary, everything is available in English, but I, of course, have a chance to look at the raw data. And I also was a bit puzzled to see, in fact, often journalists do not really consider their... Unfortunately, I should say their viewers, as I don't know, is it smart enough or careful enough and that the viewers are questioning the details. And for instance, I would strike him to know how often the respondents were mentioning that, for instance, oh, those speakers didn't wear masks properly. So why should I trust this person if he says something which he doesn't follow? And uh, generally, I understood that the, in the moment of crisis, the audience is very cautious. There is a meticulous attention to details, and this trust can be easily broken. So, for instance, even like in the stories, when you provide the stories about volunteers, you really need to provide the data, who are these people, from where they are taking money. And I think that as somebody who worked for a while in a newsroom, and just, you know, a bit like in the factory does these stories all the day and sometimes forget how important it is. For me, it was, again, important to remind that, no, people are very cautious. They don't take information for granted. Trust really matters for them a lot. In a, one of the recommendations, which is called Need for Local Coverage, you mentioned a lot about this basically the local level of information that people in Ukraine and maybe worldwide trust local regional media, sometimes even more than they trust national media. Ukrainian regional media are not in a very good shape in terms of finances, in terms of independence, but sometimes it seems that their role is underestimated here in Kyiv or elsewhere. So do you think that attention to regional local media can be a part of the response? Absolutely, because you know when we say that people want to know what's happening in the hospital, I'm not speaking about what's happening generally in the hospital. They want to know what's happening in the hospital near their household, in their community. How well equipped are the doctors in their community? What is response in their region? And it's again, again, it's shown how often there is the underestimated the role of the local journalism. I'm Kyiv-based reporter. You know, I lived in Kyiv. I work all the time in national media. But again, again, it's very clear that, especially in the times of the crisis, that's what they really, really need. Because one also of our finding was that People also can very easily, you know, they maybe won't verbalize it that way, but they differentiate the informational noise 
and useful information. And when there is a lot of information noise, so for instance, from every TV channel or every screen or from every Telegram channel, uh, you speak about COVID-19, COVID-19, people stop to consume. And they say there is at the same time too much of information. At the same time, there is lack of information and people saying like, but we don't have enough of useful information. And by useful information, we mean those in particularly regional information, you know, how the quarantine measures would be, you know, changed. What is the policy to my group, whether if I'm a pensioner or living in this area or not. By the way, it's again, I can't avoid uh, not mentioning the, the, the language issue. We can prove again and again that Ukrainians, doesn't matter where they live, they really can consume Ukrainian, Russian. However, a lot of people for whom Russian is their first language, they by habit, they go and they Google in Russian and do not fully understand that they consume news. They go then to the Russian media just because they Google in, in Russian and then you know, the Russian media pops up. And I find out that also interesting because, for instance, the nationwide Telegram and Viber channels, for instance, we have this Viber channel, Coronavirus in 4, run by the Ministry of Health Care. It has like 3.5, a bit more, a million users. Most of this information is indeed in Ukrainian. So it's a bit difficult challenge. I know it's difficult to say like, oh, Ukraine should support the Ukrainian language. That's how Ukrainian states should act. But the answer in this particular moment, you know, maybe not on the national level, but on the local level, somehow the local authorities should take care that, for instance, some of those telegram channels, for instance, not the media or something, there is some trusted Ukrainian made information is available in the language people Google. That's indeed a very interesting topic as well, but I would say it's another topic which can talk for hours about the language issue. Thank you so much for this very interesting interview. Let me remind that we had Natalia Humenyuk, well-known Ukrainian journalist, author and founder of Public Interest Journalism Lab. She's also a former head of Romansky TV. We talked about how Ukrainians and Ukraine is responding to coronavirus, in particular in the area of information. And in particular, we talked about a report from Distrust to solidarity, how can we inform people about coronavirus, which is available online in English, which was prepared by Public Interest Journalism Lab, together with Lviv Media Forum, the London School of Economics, and Kharkiv Institute for Sociological Research, and written by Igor Balinsky, Natalia Humenyuk, Denise Kobzin, Angelina Karyakina, and Peter Pomerantsev. We had Natalia Humenyuk. Again, thank you so much. This was Ukraine World Podcast. My name is Volodymyr Ilmonko. Stay with us.